century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. He's got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is. His 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, Taken. Deep mid wicket. Glenn Maxwell celebrates for it. Cole, cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Great to have you back again. And uh, in this show, we're going to be catching up with a man who is now, well, actually, he'll be telling you himself what he's up to, but certainly back in the late 1990s up until probably the mid-2000s, regarded as, or was regarded as, one of South Africa's finest wicketkeeper batsmen, Mornay van Weck. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing, Mornay? Hi, Dean. Uh, thanks for having me. Hi to all the listeners. Right. So um, you obviously are here in Zimbabwe, and you are talking about, well, you, you are part of the commentary team uh, in the ongoing series between Zimbabwe and Afghanistan. Have you enjoyed what you've seen so far? I have. Um, always felt that I've got a special bond uh, with Zimbabwe, seeing that I've been here um, maybe a dozen, maybe even as much as 20 times. I've really? sort of lost cost, uh, count down the years. Remember the first time I um, was actually representing South Africa in uh, under 16 hockey side, and we played uh, in a Rory against the Zimbabwean under 16 side. And um, since then, it's always been uh, cricket tours. Been uh, a number of times with uh, the South African cricket side, and also the uh, Knights from South Africa when we played Zimbabwe in our domestic series. And then I've also had the privilege of post-career being here a couple of times uh, in the office as a commentator. And uh, I must say, always excited to come to Zimbabwe because um, I always feel there's a great connection with the people and obviously the hospitality is second to none. Yeah, I suppose there are great similarities between the two Southern African countries. Everybody loves a braai. Uh, and a few drinks and the sunshine as well. So there are, you know, obviously great similarities which will make you feel um, like you're at home, away from home. That's it. But um, I suppose with uh, uh, your neighbour as well, you know, the the golden is really the people, and that's always what I found coming to Zimbabwe. It's a beautiful country. I've also had the privilege of of going into the countryside. Of obviously done the touristy things uh, with Livingston and uh, Zambezi and everything else that's. Mm-hmm to do there but also you know fishing in uh, some of the local dams and uh, metopos and those type of things um so that's the one part of it but the other part is um just the locals always being warm and friendly and very welcoming yeah absolutely i think that's uh, one thing that zimbabweans pride themselves on is their hospitality now you've watched a little bit of cricket here in zimbabwe you were here last year when pakistan toured they played uh, three t20 internationals two test matches and now again afghanistan touring here your your experience of the current zimbabwe setup would be very limited but what would you say just from a broad opinion and perspective uh, you know every time unfortunately that you've watched zimbabwe it seems to me that they've often got themselves into potential positions, but they've never been able to finish it off. Is that a perception that you would agree with from the limited amount of cricket that you've watched here? Yeah, spot on. I think you've uh, put it in a nutshell. If you look at the scorecards and you look at uh, a run of results, 
he will see uh, more losses there than any Zimbabwean fan would like to see. Um, but if you have watched the matches like I've done with some of them and some of the series that I've been involved with and you maybe have a look at finer details of the scorecard and you'll quickly see that um, by, by no stretch of the imagination Zimbabwe being outplayed across uh, a whole match and uh, even in all the formats um, there are a lot of positives and for most parts of the, the games that they, they aren't on the winning side they are making a good fist of it and getting themselves into good positions I think if you're a Zimbabwean uh, fan and, and coach and player, uh, I think the wish would just be uh, for the players, when they do things as well as they do in periods, just to do it a little bit longer. Just to sustain uh, pressure for a little bit longer so that, that when they get to that tipping point, it, it goes uh, towards them and not, not away from them, which has so often been the case. It just seems to me that they can't stay focused, Mornay. So initially they're quite lively in the field, but and, and they often get the opposition into a bit of trouble, three, four, even five down with less than 100 runs on the board. But then it's that middle and lower order that are able to manufacture ways of, of not only recovering, but then posting scores which ultimately are then defendable. And, and it just seems like the Zimbabweans lose that concentration where they're very sharp in the field, they put the ball in good areas, and, and then it all falls apart from probably about overs 27, 28, up until the final 50th over. Um, I think, to be honest, some of the matches that I've seen, it's, it's actually been um, the opposite, where they're not off to the best of starts with a new ball, and mm. then uh, it's in the middle periods that those bowlers have to try and create a bit of pressure, in which, to be fair, in some cases, they've actually been quite handy. Um, but I suppose it's, it's, the template's never the same, uh, especially if you're still looking for a formula and a recipe that brings you consistent success. Um, but yeah, that is, it is important to, to be able to have that energy and that in concentration uh, for longer periods when you're playing against better teams because invariably you'll find that um, the good teams bat further down and they are able to, to get themselves into... To, uh, strong positions after recovering um, and that is the nature of international cricket if you uh, if you give a side an opportunity to to call themselves out of uh, a pressure situation the nature of it is that it can change in five overs or ten overs there can be a bit of a momentum shift um, but as much uh, as, as we'd like to talk about skills you know, there's so many facets to playing good cricket over a consistent period of time. It's, it's uh, there's a skill set side of it, and you can break that down in so many departments. There's uh, the fitness side of it, and uh, the conditioning side of it, which most teams now have does have completely um, covered. It's, it's um, not as a newer science as it was when I started playing in '97, for instance, first class cricket for the Free State. You had one part-time trainer involved, and by the time I finished with my international career, um, 23 years later, in, in 20, uh, yeah, uh, 2020, yeah. or whatever that might be, um, you had a, a conditioning team, not only um, on, the t on the field side of things, but they are allocated gyms with physios and, and buyers and whatnot to, to keep you in that space. So that's a one part of it. And then probably I think the for, the forgotten art or the 
undiscovered uh, gold mine in, in most professional sports and where cricket is maybe still a little bit lacking is is you know we often talk about confidence and uh, body language but it all comes down to the mental condition side of of an athlete of a player of a batsman of a bowler and um, you can throw in concentration maybe in, in that department and that's uh, like you maybe alluded to earlier where you feel the Zimbabweans aren't quite applying themselves for for long enough period periods so that could be uh, as much game awareness as it might be just you know having the, the mental fortitude and understanding of um, of where and how to navigate uh, your skill set in a particular game, whether it be with bat or ball. Okay, so let's talk a bit about your career. Now, it's a career that I certainly enjoyed, and I know that there are many people around the world, let alone sub-Saharan Africa, who who thought that you were, you know, an incredible, an incredibly natural talent. I mean, the first time I really. I suppose, you know, got to witness you playing extensively was down the 19 World Cup in 1998, the first time it was held in South Africa. That is a group, a good group of, of players you were playing with in that particular World Cup, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was, definitely. Um, likes of Jock Rudolph, uh, played plenty of tests uh, and ODIs for South Africa. Johan Mayberg, who played um, a lot of domestic cricket in South Africa and New Zealand and also in uh, in Somerset, where he's actually part of the coaching staff now. Victor Mpitsang, who's a convener of selectors at the moment for the South African Proteas, was also in that side. Um, John Kent, oh, yeah. who's uh, also doing a bit of commentary work around he, the world. He kept on the side, didn't he? Was he the captain or you were the captain? No, uh, our captain was you? Matthew Street. Oh, yes, he, indeed. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah, he went into uh, straight yeah, after. He did play a couple of games for the Gauteng Lions as a wicketkeeper batsman, but... Uh, after quite an early retirement, he went to a, into a financial director. He's a well-educated uh, person who, who pursued uh, business interests. Okay, all right. Um, but then as we, we saw you, obviously you uh, alluded to already, in 1997 you became part of the uh, what was then known as Free State, you know, the Free State Provincial Setup. I mean, to be surrounded by the group of players that you had, obviously a lot of them wouldn't have been around because they were away on national duty. But when when you did have the luxury of having a full-strength Free State squad, Alan Donald, um, I think Louis Wilkinson, his days, he'd finished up already. Was he still playing, Louis Wilkinson? Still playing, still yeah. Playing. So the group that I uh, was sort of born into in that Free State setup were, in terms of um, Free State in those years, uh, legends. Um, yeah. We not only had the international players, so it was Alan Donald. I played uh, a couple of years with Hansi Cronier. Mm. Um, Nicky Boyer was at that stage also a captain international. Um, and then the host of very, very good provincial players. Yeah. You mentioned Louis Wilkinson, Philip Bradley. He was sort of my first mentor in terms of wicket-keeping. Um, that was around Bradley player. Franklin Stevenson was the international player. Um, yeah, Kwesi Fenter, who oh, yeah. many would rate as probably one of the best players never to play for South Africa on the domestic scene, particularly in, in, the, in the 90s. Um, yeah, so it was just a, um, a great team to walk into in terms of seeing the work ethic and the desire and the, the expectation to win. The standards were high 
and uh, it was a successful team. Perhaps one that was a little bit on the decline, but uh, that happens with teams. You go through cycles, and I suppose over my, my career, I went through four or five cycles where you build up and you are you know, top of the pile for, for a season or two, and then inevitably there's a bit of a drop-off, and you start a rebuilding process, and you try and achieve those, those levels again. Um, but um, I was a grade 12 uh, schoolboy when I made my debut in, in March against uh, Border. Ah. Um, you know, so I, I was, what a privilege to, to be a, a schoolboy and, and play what was very, very tough cricket in those years. So you, 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 you touch on something that I liked very much because I met Buta Dupanar back in 2001 when he was still obviously playing for South Africa and he was here in Zimbabwe. Yeah, he was there. And he, he, he spoke about um, Hansi Kronje instilling the will to win. It was a culture that he feels that Hansi really, um, you know, was very, very severe and very strong on. And, and basically, Alan Donald also said something very similar where... Hansi was just such a born leader that everyone followed. You didn't question what he wanted to do. You just simply observed what it is that he, that, that he wanted to do, and you just followed in his footsteps. Can you, can you relate to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, um, it's hard to put it into words, but he certainly had an X factor about him. And um, the word demand respect would be very wrong because he was, in fact, very opposite to, yeah. to that. He yeah. was very warm, friendly, uh, kind, uh, you know, he had a twinkle in his eye, and uh, he was competitive in a very healthy and very respectable way. It wasn't win at all costs and uh, end of the world if, if it didn't happen, but he was an out-and-out uh, pure uh, competitor who really led by example in, in particularly that facet in, in, in being very healthy in, in the manner in which he competes. Uh, but also being a very, um, I suppose, good loser would, would be the, <laughs> the right way. And, I know what you're saying. And that's yeah. probably the one thing that you can't say about too many of today's yeah. top athletes, that they, uh, they're good winners, uh, but not very good losers. And maybe that's something that's just lost a little bit of shine over the last decade or so. But um, that's also the value that, that I suppose we grew up, uh, Bhutan, yeah. see myself, Louis Wilkinson, um, Bradley, uh, play, uh, not Bradley, Philip Bradley, Philip Bradley yeah. Victor and Patsang. We were all guys who obviously went to school at Great College and being the school that it is, there's a very strong set of uh, values that, that gets instilled uh, in you uh, and the sports field is a big part of that classroom. Uh, that's part of Great College's DNA and we all went through that and yeah, maybe that's why there's a good connection there. Um, it, what would you say, or when, at which stage of your career would you say that you honestly felt you were ready to be picked? You know, because lots of times we see players who have an abundance of talent, and, and sometimes they get picked when they have the talent, but they're a bit too young, and they're a bit too raw. Now, what would you say, when, when would be a time when you felt, you know what, I'm scoring runs, I'm doing everything I need to be doing, but I'm... I'm not being looked at anymore. It seemed like the selectors have basically turned a blind eye, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, I think that's sort of a twofold question um, in terms of when you think you're ready right. and when you feel selectors are not looking at you anymore, when you actually feel like you can really add value now. 
So that's a good question. I think like 95% of players, we think very early that, that we're ready. Maybe 99% of players in hindsight feel that they should have been picked a little bit later. Um, but it's also just because you, you hope you're ready and you want to see if you're ready. So that's also why there's that drive. If you've put in the performances, um, I think it's very unhealthy and it's maybe a bit of a random point, but it's unhealthy if, if you think you're ready for the next level after a handful of good performances. I think there's safety in allowing players to really dominate for a season or even two. And history shows that, that those players are able to really acclimatize and, and get to the necessary level very quickly um, and stay in the mix where players who are often plucked up on one or two good performances or purely on potential or hearsay. And I suppose nowadays social media plays a part in that, but it's nothing new. It's happened in the past as well. Those players often get spat out and then have to work really hard for a year or two or three or four to find their way back after taking a bit of a knock. And we like talking about confidence and the mental fortitude that's needed to play um, professional cricket. And that really gets tested when that happens with you. Looking at my career, I think um, I was, uh, grew up in a, in, a, in a cricket world where there was only two formats. So we played 50-over cricket and, and uh, four-day cricket. And um, I think you mentioned the, the World Cup earlier in the 19 that yes. sort of put me on the map and it got me to, to have an early start to my international, like my provincial career with free state, first class career. Um, and I was naturally quite an attacking player, um, didn't mind hitting the ball in the air, wanted to score runs, as, as you often find with the youth. They uh, appreciate attacking play a lot more than uh, a solid defence and having a, a, a good defensive technique, which is something that I grew to love later on in my career. So I had a bit of a slow start to my four-day career, Red Bull career, um, but it was pretty much my white ball success that kept me in the mix, and, and squats wasn't as uh, you know, specialised as it is today. Um, so I started in 97 and then did make that debut for South Africa at Lords in 2003. So yeah, it took me took me six years to to get to to then obviously before that, uh, I think five or six months before that we went to Australia, played against a very good Australian A side, which is pretty much uh, our sold name team nowadays. If you go through the the, the names in, yeah. in terms of who played the Clark and Hodge and. Uh, Bracken and you know just it was such a good side and I managed to end that at, as a top uh, one day run scorer uh, on that tour and that got me into that England tour where I played and um, I mean it was just a stage where maybe nothing was as professional as it is today in terms of squads being set up you know coaches uh, weren't as professional as they are today in terms of really an understanding of many facets of the game so there was a lot of in and out there at that stage of you go on a tour you get left out you go on a tour you get left out and certainly it was like that in my case um but that certainly taught me a lot of a lot of things and my in it my in my one day of my south african career international career i suppose ended up being one where if you look at uh, Crick info it'll probably tell you yes i had international career 15 16 years because it'll tell you made my debut in 2003 and I played my, my last game for South Africa, I think in 2017 against New Zealand. 
Uh, so it looks like a very long and illustrious career, but in fact, it was like four cycles got picked, uh, dropped, earned my way for a recall four years later, then dropped again, then worked my uh, behind off, got mm -hmm. picked again four years later, and then that is the, that was a pattern. I was sort of picked every four years for a bit, spat out every four years <laughs> and spat out. Um, you know, so that was my journey, and it's. Um, given me a, a, a good understanding of, of uh, myself and of uh, the journey and, and what it's like to, to be in and out. And, but to answer your question in, in a short way, after I played in the IPL in around 2010 and having the exposure of, of having uh, a guy like David Hussey, Brendan McCullum, uh, Andy Bickle, Ganguly. So that is a Calcutta Knight Riders. That was a Knight Riders. Yeah, yeah. After being and, and being in that change room and and doing quite well in the IPL as well, uh, I think I averaged 35 at a strike rate of 150. Um, that combination of things made me feel like pff, I'm actually not too far behind all these guys that I would look at in TV and think they're on a different level. And they were brilliant. I mean, there was a information sharing that took place. Uh, Buchanan was our coach. Um, played against uh, the likes of the Gangulis and the Warns of, of, of that era uh, that was, you know, the legends of the game. And um, that's why I think, you know, India has become such a strength because that's what all their younger players experience and it's creating such a broad players base for them. Uh, when you rub shoulders with international players that are a level above you and you, and they help you up and you also see, okay, I, I need to improve in this and that, but I'm not that far behind. That's where I um, I felt like, yo, I can I can play here. Where I think up until that point, there was question marks, in, and that's part of being a professional sportsman. There's always going to be that shadow behind you, uh, that, that question mark knocking you on the shoulder, asking you, are you... Are you good enough? Yeah. If you make it there, then the next is, can you, can you be good in the subcontinent? Mm. Can you be good against spin bowling? Can you be good against fast bowling? Whatever the case might be, that's, it's different for, for players. But you, that's part of the puzzle of figuring it out and improving and working on your game. And obviously I feel I ended up being a much, much better player later on in my career than I was early. And that's how it should be. If I look at my... Red Bull career, I um, had a very tough start. Uh, I mean, I had massive technical issues that wasn't really addressed at that stage by, by coaches because um, that was not the way the game was really taught. Uh, where nowadays a coach would probably pick up on it in, in, in a week or two and it would get sorted. So the, my average would have been 10 or 15 in, in, in Red Bull cricket. And uh, I sort of ended my career having a high 30 um, Red Bull cricket, which looks yeah okay, but pretty average. But yeah, yeah. I did average over 50 or 60 in my last 10 years. But I was always hampered by that initial start to my career that really knocked my stats. So, um, you know, sometimes you actually, in hindsight, if you play a little bit later, you're not going to get too much damage done. Um, but hey, that's my journey. And, you know, I learned uh, a lot from it. You... 
you did say that obviously you learned huge amounts, even though the fact that you were picked up and spat out and picked up and spat out over your internet, your, your limited over your white ball career as a pro tier. Now, as much as I understand that you would have learned a lot from that, surely at times you must have felt quite disheartened and hurt by the procedure as well. Yeah, it's, it's, there's disappointment for sure. Um, spat out is probably a bit of a strong word. Um, I mean, there's also a period where there was a lot of strong competition in, uh, in, in that South African mm, side, especially yeah. for the positions that I, I competed for. Um, you know, Mark Boucher is a legend of South African cricket. He, he was a wicketkeeper, and then after him um, came A.B. de Villiers. And I think there was a stage where I felt being a wicketkeeper as well counted against me a little bit, where I think I could have been looked at uh, as a top three batter out and out for South Africa. Um, and, you know, you know, often I would be put in that category now I'm a batsman wicketkeeper, but my numbers were good enough, I think, to push for that top three spot. Absolutely. And you only get so many gaps and opportunities, and, and sometimes the opportunity goes to other players, they adapt to a level, uh, and then they the position is theirs, and it becomes really, really tough. But um, the competition was good, the competition was healthy, and you know what, I... Um, I threw myself completely into to, um, doing my best for, for my franchise team. Um, played for the Knights for 16 years and then played for the Dolphins for, for seven years. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. My focus was also mainly there. Um, and that's why I got, I suppose, these cycles where I got picked again. And it normally happened when I was actually just trying to do very good and do my best and do very well for, for my local team that I got pulled up. Those years and, and periods or seasons where you feel like yes, I'm playing to try and get into the pro tiers, for me, never clicked. It never worked. Uh, maybe it's different for other players, but I felt if my focus was on my teammates around me here, try and lead the best that I can and, and, and play good innings and most importantly, enjoy it, have a lot of fun on the field and off the field and, and build good and strong relationships, I often felt my, my numbers and my stats went through the roof then as well. You know, you spoke earlier on <clears throat> about something I want to get back to, and that was about finding out what you were good at and what you were not so good at. Now, you alluded to the tour of the UK in 2003, and, and it was a tour I loved very much. And I know that it, there was also a triangular series between uh, South Africa, England, and Zimbabwe. I actually remember a very good half century that you scored as well. I'm sure it was against England, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, did you get a half century? Yeah, no, no. I, in that series, uh, yeah, you're correct. It was England and, and Zimbabwe was there as well. Yeah. And obviously South Africa. We played in the final against uh, England. England, yes, yeah. And for, for some reason, after being on tour for six weeks and not playing one match, uh, the evening before the, the final, I got told I'm playing in the final. Which, apart from being... Or I was, actually wasn't told. I was told, I'm in the 12 for tomorrow. They're going to make a call uh, in the morning. And, um, you know, in hindsight, that's really poor uh, players' management. Yeah. Uh, and I was always told there was a story behind what happened there, but uh, the coaches from those times don't really want to tell me what happened, and I'm quite happy not to hear. But it was very strange to be put in that situation um, and not even being told the night before you're definitely playing. It was, you're in a 12, we'll look tomorrow morning, and then... Get in the huddle, and I'm told, uh, okay, you're playing. And obviously, as a 23-year-old South African, I was super proud, and I was just going to do my best. And it ended up being 
uh, an average day for South Africa. It was one of those days we um, we got skittled for just over 100. I think I made 18, um, which I think was the second highest score on the day. And uh, went home and subsequently didn't get picked for the next series. But I did get a call up as, as, a, as injury cover for Herschel Gibbs. Um, but what a place to make a debut. And I, I do have... Um, Bittersweet memories of yeah, that day. Yeah. I think um, just you know, I think what you uh, referring to is four years later, we toured Ireland uh, and we played yes, India yes, yes. Ireland yes. in a tri series. I do recall that. And that's where I was uh, top scorer. I think I made an eighty something against India or two fifties against India uh, in Belfast. That's it. That's it. The old hard drive, my hard drive, not uh, performing as well as what it should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's in the UK, so it counts. You're not for it. It's just in that second cycle. In the second there. cycle. All right, yeah. Um, but I, I remember Michael Holding alluding to the fact that he felt that you were a bit vulnerable. So in other words, you could pull very nicely in front of square. But anything that, that was above shoulder height... I guess where then the hook shot, if you did, if you didn't bail out, and if you want to do attack, would but that's where the hook shot would come in. They felt that you struggled a bit with that. So good on the pull, not so good on the hook. Is that a would that? I don't know. Would that be a fair comment? No, no, it wouldn't. But no, no, no. I mean, I couldn't understand that, you know. And um, having listened to a lot of commentary, I can tell you about a lot of uh, weaknesses that I had to iron out in my game. Yes. Yeah. And that led to a couple of technical changes in uh, my setup, my stance, uh, etc. But that wasn't one of them. Yeah. So um, he's, he was a great commentator, but I, I think uh, he probably got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, just, I, you know, I couldn't believe it when when I heard that because having listened to so much domestic cricket in South Africa. I knew that you could hook because you know I heard you know, vivid descriptions of you playing the hook shot and, and playing with it, playing it with a great deal of success. So that didn't really uh, make a great deal of sense to me. But tell me about the cultures, Monet. So you had a, a, a very set uh, culture in in playing for Free State, the Knights, and then the last part of your career, you're now playing for the Dolphins. What were the cultures like? So you're still in South Africa, but you've now moved from one franchise to another. Were there any major differences between um, the way that the two sides went about their business? Well, a big difference, night and day. Um, just as a bit of background, and, and you alluded to it earlier, and when we talked about that earlier free state side, it was a cycle of being successful and uh, a team playing to win trophies. That was the number one goal. and. That's what every team says, I suppose, at the start of the season. We want to win a trophy, you know, because it's the right thing to say. But the work ethic and the planning and um, everything in that free state side was, was built around being successful and trying to win every single game. And one of the reasons the CEO of the Dolphins contacted me was they felt they had a bit of a leadership vacuum um, uh, they needed a senior player. They wanted somebody to maybe play a guiding role in helping a team win a trophy that hadn't won a trophy for, I'm speaking under correction, but it could have been more than a decade. And obviously the uh, Durban personnel felt that we were, uh, in terms of legacy, you know, Natal's up there with one of the oldest, oh, yeah. most prestigious uh, provinces in South Africa. And uh, they didn't. F they felt that the success on field wasn't matching up to that. Um, 
so after about three years of chatting with the CEO, I felt, uh, I think around about 2011, 12, now's the right time to move, make a move. I was about um, 33, still playing very good cricket, uh, been with the Knights for 16 years. So I just felt, okay, I'm either going to stay now with the Knights and finish my career, or I'm going to take this bold, scary move and move to a new mm-hmm. new province. Um, we they want me as a, as a senior player and thought maybe for me and my family it'd be a good move um, to, to see what it's like and see what life's out there <laughs> in a coastal city. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, the, the 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 difference was going from a team that wanted to win every game to going into a setup where there were a lot of career cricketers that just wanted to make sure that they average enough to get a contract the next year. Um, and not necessarily win. And um, I mean, the, as a listener, you might say, yeah, but you have to average that to win. But it's it's about doing what the team needs at certain stages to be able to win and not think, okay, I'm good now, I've done well enough. And I suppose the Dolphins at that stage would have been the poster boy for guys just looking after themselves and making sure that they've got a career. And I will not say it was the players' fault. It was also... Maybe just in terms of the instability that there was around the governing of that province at that stage that caused, you know, leadership flows from the top down. Um, and maybe players just felt like they they weren't too secure and, and safe. And, and that maybe that's what a long period of, of not having success also does. You know, it, it just bites at the confidence of everybody. You know, the coaches are under pressure, leaders are under pressure, CEOs are under pressure. So, in any ways, went to, to the Dolphins and really was a, a team effort. Um, we managed to win a T20 um, trophy, the first trophy in, like I said, probably more than a decade in my first year as Dolphins captain there. But um, it, it was tough. It took a lot of hard work and, and not just from me. We had Lance Klusner, who's currently involved with Zimbabwe, as, as batting coach, he was the head coach. He was brilliant. Revise Gobind, who's the assistant coach of the Proteus now, was there as in his capacity as assistant coach to the Dolphins. Uh, we had a very good SNC team. We got uh, Christy Spice involved, who's also been involved with uh, Zimbabwe as a mental conditioning coach. It was a real team effort to really turn things around for, for the Dolphins, which... Um, went well for a year and then sort of maybe went back to the old ways for a year or so after that but then as the youngsters started uh, growing into that Dolphins team we uh, we saw um, where they are now uh, in terms of being one of the successful yeah. franchises over the last three or four years so that's why it was a good learning curve for me not not necessarily easy I could have stayed in a comfort zone uh, in Bloemfontein in, in the environment that I that I knew and was very comfortable in but um, the the journey down to the Dolphins was um, not always easy but in terms of growth for me and experiencing different mindsets different cultures it, I mean it, one thing that, that gave me lots of pleasure um, being at the Dolphins and, and experiencing uh, those good days where it's such a melting pot of the different cultures. Uh, every single culture in South Africa. Um, if you want to th- think of a team that was a rainbow nation, that was the Dolphins. So that made it, made it extra spectacular. And also 
Now, I probably should mention JC Chilin as well, who was CEO at, at, at that particular time of the Dolphins. Played you know, a massive role as well in terms of the direction that the Dolphins started taking um, in those years. So, um, yeah, it's two different chapters, um, very different. Managed to have, uh, as in a team context and individually, success at, at both franchises because um, we ended up winning a couple of um, momentum 50 over trophies as well in, in my time there um, and certainly contributed a lot to, to my de development as, as a not only a cricketer but I think as a leader and as just a person as a whole making that switch Now in 23 years as, a, as we begin to wrap up now it's been quite a nice long chat but most enjoyable in, in 23 years of playing the amount of cricket that you did you would have faced a lot of bowlers you would have kept to a lot of very interesting bowlers. You would have played on very good pitches, some tricky pitches. Who would you say was the most difficult bowler to face? Let's first of all take it from a fast bowling perspective. Who was the one who really gave you a bit of a working over? <laughs> there's a different end uh, to the question and the start there. Because um, there's a difference between somebody who, who was uh, very quick Ah. Uh, and somebody that gave me a good working over. Right. Um, okay. And, uh, it, you know, but there's also, there's also rhythm and you could be guy, there's the guys that aren't that well known that, that on the day were spectacular. But obviously I had the privilege um, and having um, a lot of good deals with at that stage was my teammate, Alan Donald. So I had to face him in the net and um, I wasn't shy to, to have a go because I, I felt that uh, my playing short ball and the hooks in the pools were uh, and the cut shots were my bread and butter so uh, you know at that stage when you see a legend running in you're actually more excited than anything else so that was my baptism into into um, into facing fast bowling and um, yeah Alan wanted to get you out and get me out and it was tough which is which is great for me um, then I remember early on facing um, in that sort of period, late 90s, Alan Donald was was quick, yes. swung it. We, I played Shuab Akta in a, in a tour match, and he, and he was quick just before the series started in South Africa. Oh, that was 98, wasn't it? That's 98. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. The year just after, we played against uh, the West Indies, and uh, Nixon McLean was just bursting onto the scene there. And he rattled uh, the free state. I played in a four-day game. I think they bowled us out for 78. Yes. Yeah, I remember of which that. I made like 14 not out because, you know, the short ball was something I was going <laughs> to take on. And uh, I had other deficiencies in my, in my technique. But fast bowling was always something I felt comfortable against. Yeah, if you gave me balls that would swing and, and, and late and would nip back in, uh, like a Vern Freelander, for instance... You know, that would be... It was tough. Um, Sean Pollock, I suppose, as well. Sean Pollock, I faced him as well. Um, yeah, you know, got uh, a lot of bounce. That's the one thing I do remember about Sean Pollock. There's a length that he, that he bowled that just bounced a bit more than, than other bowlers got from the same length. Um, yeah, and then later on, I mean, faced Dale Stane when he burst onto the, the scene. Um, he was a great fast bowler, swung the ball so much. Honestly, facing him Sundays, it felt like he swung at two meters. And then you watch the replays, and it's only uh, half a foot or <laughs> a, a foot or maybe two feet. But he just had the ability to swing it you know, so early and so much. It, it, 
such a good pace. Um, Face Mohamed Sami and the Umar Ghouls. Mm, um, very good bowlers. Very good bowlers, skillful. That was the first time I faced um, the reverse swing. And what I remember, we, I played for South Africa A at uh, Kimberley against Pakistan. And, um, you know, talking about watershed moments earlier, that was one for me because I managed to score a, 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 a hundred against them. But I remember facing... Uh, Sami, Gul, I think Asif was the other fast mm. bowler. And, you know, at that stage I had faced reverse swing, but I'd never faced bowlers bowling uh, reverse swing going away. Mm. And obviously yeah. I, I had an opportunity there to bat a long time and to see, you know, what the ball's doing. And there was a stage where I just realized, but hang on, they're holding the ball like this and it's reversing, but it's actually going away. I was like, Flabbergast is like, I didn't know you can do this, you know. So that was <laughs> an interesting, that was amazing. I mean, uh, just to have this, the, and they all did it, it was amazing. Um, you know, Mornay Morkel um, was a sort of bowler in a way that I enjoyed facing because I, once again, I enjoyed bounce, bounce. I enjoyed, yeah. you know, the shorter stuff. Um, you know, who else was there? Jimmy Anderson was somebody, somebody that I faced early in my career and he was exceptionally skillful no, no no surprise that it's turned out to yeah. be one of the best ever still going strong yeah still going strong um did you face shane warne you would have faced shane warne at some point played against him in the ipl yes of course, um, of course, of course. I, I did play against rajasthan don't remember if i faced him but for me he's hands down the best bowler that there's ever been mm. um yeah anil kumble was uh on, on on tracks that suited him would have been a handful. Uh, Mullerithran faced him pre the World Cup in 2003. Uh, was it seven in South Africa? No, it was 2003. And three. That's, That's right. right. So I faced him in one of the warm-up matches. Uh, never seen anybody turn the ball that much ever uh, in uh, Bloemfontein or uh, at that stage in my career. It was just amazing to see where the ball would pitch and still miss leg stump and miss you on the leg side pretty much. Um, yeah, and, you know, if you turn our attention, so, I so faced many. Brett Lee as well. Oh, Brett, Brett Lee, Lee. Yeah. in the Champions League in India, I faced yeah, him. Um, and I tell you what, I remember that night in Delhi. He, uh, I wasn't out, but he, his first ball that I faced from me hit me on the front pad. Right here on the knee before uh, oh, I felt like uh, my hands even had a time to had time to get down. So um, that was a good wake up call. Luckily, it was sliding down leg. So um, uh, if it was a little bit straighter, it would have cleaned me up one hundred percent. Yeah. So he was quick. And then you've got guys bowling at different angle that sometimes feel a little bit quicker. Like you know, maybe not that well known, but you'll know him, Dirk Nannis. Oh yeah. Of you know, he uh, the action of his was. Uh, at that stage, playing IPL against him as well in South Africa, he was he was quite quick. Uh, and then the skill comes in, you know, guys like Zaya Khan that uh, just know exactly what they're doing with the ball. Vernon Phelan uh, was one of the best bowlers I, I, I faced. Um, Alan Dawson didn't mm -hmm. play that much, but early in my career as a, as a youngster, as a teenager, you know, facing uh, his action and the way that he swung the ball as well, he was like... Uh, Dale Stain, but probably 10 or 15k yeah. slower, but yeah. still he had the skill to really swing, especially a white ball, a lot. Um, you know, I, I, 
Yeah, there's, there's so many. Mm. Um, and if you have, the, the, I suppose, the privilege of um, facing them at, at the peak of their powers, it's, yeah, it's an unforgettable experience. I mean, the IPL, I, I don't know. I, that must have been, like, again, I remember, you know, watching you there. I use the word watch. I remember watching you there. That, that must just have been one of the, the real highlights of your career other than playing for South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I had the privilege of playing uh, for South Africa in India, yeah. uh, which, you know, takes the cake. Uh, World Cup in 2011, uh, played against in front of sold-out crowds, been on eight tours to um, India. And you know what's amazing? We, we still play a bit of Legends cricket <laughs> in India, where uh, it's a road safety World Series and um, obviously driven by uh, Sachin... Uh, and and uh, his, uh, his company and uh, Gavaskar is also involved, Sunni. Um, and the, the pull and the, the privilege of playing cricket in India is just, it's almost indescribable until you, you taste and you hear it for, and you see it for yourself. And I bring up the Legends Tournament just, just to give an example of, of the passion that there is. You know, we've played in two uh, Legends tournaments now, and, and India is obviously star-studded. Yeah. Zaya Khan that I mentioned, Yuvraf Singh, Tendulkar, Sewag. I mean, the list just goes on. It was um, um, a real Legends team. And when we played them, we still have it the, at the likes of uh, John T, uh, Rhodes, Lance was going to join us later, Mackay and Tini was there. Um, the Albi Morkos of the world. So we had a strong mm. team as well. But what I want to say is, in, in, in this state that we're in now, as mostly 40-year-old men, we play in India in a Legends tournament, there's still 55,000 people in the stadium. Amazing. Sold out. And you know, in India, if there's 50,000 uh, people in the stadium, there's another 50,000 outside that's come to celebrate the festival of cricket and, and the enjoyment factor that's out there. Um, you know, so that shows you why playing cricket in India is, has to be on the to-do list of, of any cricketer. Monai Fanweik, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for such an incredibly light-hearted yet very, very uh, informative conversation. And I'm wishing you nothing but the very best for your future and everything that you do. Wishing you nothing but happiness and success. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure and hope we get to do it again soon. You've been listening to the Dnut Stumps podcast. If ever you'd like to get in touch and perhaps maybe know of anybody or you yourself would like to sponsor the show, please feel free to reach me on my Twitter handle, which is at Dean underscore plus E. And uh, it'll be great to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Dnut Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. <laughs>